0: Before we take a look at our text for today, I wanted to begin by considering a question together. And the question is this. What was the pivotal moment in human history? What was the pivotal moment in human history? And the way that you go about answering this question will reveal much about how you think and what you believe your world view, if you want to put it in that way. Now, if we were to generally ask this question to the world, I wouldn't be surprised, but some might reply by saying that it was Gutenberg's invention of the printing press or the coming of the Enlightenment period, which would reveal the importance that person places upon the progress of ideas. Others might answer that it was Darwin's origin of species, revealing that person's abandonment, perhaps, of the supernatural for the natural science. And perhaps others might say that it was the development of democracy or the signing of the Magna Carta or the American Declaration of Independence, thus revealing his or her belief in the primacy of politics. Well, if we were to ever ask that same question to the ancient Greeks, they would have probably be confused, and they would have probably refused to answer this question because they would have seen it as illegitimate. The Greeks, the ancients, didn't believe that there could ever exist a turning point to history at all because to them, history was a circular thing. It was circular in Nature, history was a circular process similar to how many people think about history today in our Western culture, the circle of life, history being a never-ending cycle. One of the most influential books that was ever to be written is uh, Augustine's City of God, and I believe that there are some brothers in here. Who've shared with me that they're reading that book together, but Augustine's City of God stood in stark contrast in that time to this cyclical kind of belief and this view of history. In this work, Augustine uh, he claims that history it must be linear; it has to be linear. Because there exists one event in all of history that can never be repeated again. Namely, the death of the Son of God or the forgiveness of sin. That by nature, this event could happen only once. It could never be repeated because the work of Christ had been so satisfactorily accomplished upon Calvary's cross. And so Augustine, he went on to develop a Christian view of history that was linear in nature, and he claimed that there is a beginning, a central point, a turning point, and a definite conclusion. And the great climax of history is none other than the cross, the death of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the theme that we'll be focusing in on today in our study which is the theme here, the, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. The once and for all sacrifice of the Messiah. Well, with that being said, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll be focusing on verses 23 to 26. But for the sake of context, because it's been a few weeks for us here, Uh, We'll begin our time reading starting in verse 16. So, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. This is God's Word. The writer writes, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded Then likewise He sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the instruments of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Verse 23 we read, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves purified with better sacrifices than thee. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year without blood, with blood of another, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Amen. This is God's Word. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, You have said at the very beginning of this epistle, that in various times and in various ways you have spoken. You have spoken once through the prophets, but have in these last days spoken to us through a Son, your Son, the one who is the appointed heir of all things, he who is the very brightness of your glory, the one who is the very Word made flesh, and it's to him that we look to. It's to Him that we trust. O Lord, we pray that in this next hour as we turn our attentions to the preaching and revealing and receiving of Holy Scripture, that by the Spirit You would feed and nourish each and every one of us in the great green pasture that is Your Word. Reveal Yourself. Refresh our souls. Bring the lost to saving faith and above all else be magnified and glorified. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus, who is sufficient for all things. Amen. Amen. One of the reoccurring themes of Hebrews that we've seen and studied time and time again is that the Old Covenant and the whole of the Old Testament, the Exodus, the Tabernacle, the Temple, were all given and established by God Himself, not as a means of salvation. Not as the solution for us to somehow obtain salvation for our own selves. But these things served as shadows of the better things that were to come. More specifically, they served as shadows of the One who was to come. The tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, all of the Furniture and vestments found within the lampstand that represented God's revealing light, the table of showbread that spoke of the intimate fellowship with the living God, and the altar of incense that demonstrated the privilege of access to God. All these things communicated one simple message for us that access to God had been thoroughly barred because of sin. Everything about the tabernacle spoke about the great privileges from God found in God that sinners must be denied of. And so the Old Covenant and that old system were merely instruments used by God to point us to the Savior. And the very reason for why, specifically for us here in this context in chapter 9, for why the writer of Hebrews argues for the necessity, we've read that many times, necessity, necessity. He argues for the necessity of a better sacrifice, a better sanctuary, and a better blood. In verse 23, the writer begins by connecting the earthly to the heavenly. If you look down with me, let's read this together again. Verse 23, we read, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, referring to the earthly tabernacle and the earthly sacrifices. And then he continues on, but the heavenly things themselves must be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, just to be transparent here, when I began preparing this message and I read these first two verses of our passage, I felt a wave of panic come over me. And the reason being that I had no clue on what these two verses meant. I could make sense of what I was reading. That's not hard to do, but I couldn't understand if what I was reading here, if what I was understanding here whether it was right or wrong, and perhaps some of you might have felt that tension too. We read here that the earthly tabernacle, the copies of the things in the heavens, needed to be cleansed and purified with animal sacrifices. And I think we can all understand and agree with that. But the troubling part comes in at the end of verse 23 when we read, but the heavenly things themselves must be purified with better sacrifices. When we look at this verse and these two verses together, it almost sounds like heaven also needs to be cleansed. Do you see that? It seems like the writer is saying that heaven needs to be cleansed. Purified, And now, if you're like me and you read these two verses, you might be thinking to yourself, that does not make sense. That cannot, it cannot be right. Is the writer really saying here that heaven itself needs to be cleansed, purified? You might be thinking to yourself, I thought heaven was heaven. God is in heaven. Why would the place where God dwells Why would the heavenly things need to be cleansed? And again, is the writer trying to say here that heaven is defiled? And this is the problem that boggled my mind this whole week. Now to make sense of this on what I believe it means for the heavenly things to be cleansed, I want to first begin by presenting a few ideas that I've compiled together from a variety, a stack of commentaries I have laying on my desk. Let me just present a few of these ideas first. One commentator states that the heavenly sanctuary is symbolic of our conscience, linking it back to the idea presented back in verse 9, meaning that the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is a picture of the cleansing of the conscience and he says this because heaven is a realm that can never be defiled. It's impossible. Another commentator presents that the purification of the heavenly is based on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which reads, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so this guy, he he states that because there's warfare going on against the spiritual hosts of darkness in the heavens, in the heavenly realm, this is the reason for why heaven needs to be purified. Another commentator claims that the purification of the heavenly things is simply a term that's used to say this, that in the heavenly sanctuary, the new covenant was inaugurated just like how the sprinkling of the blood in the earthly tabernacle inaugurated the old covenant. And that because the theme that we find here in Hebrews chapter 9 and prior, on the law and on the tabernacle and on the old and new covenants, we find that theme there. And so he says that This language here is simply a language of inauguration. Finally and lastly, another commentator states that heaven needs to be cleansed because Satan's there. In Job 1, we find that Satan was there himself present in the heavenly realm asking for Job. You remember, you read this. And so because Satan's in heaven... He claims heaven needs to be purified. Heaven needs to be cleansed because Satan and the fallen angels have so tainted the purity of heaven. Perhaps. Now I have no problem here with any of these ideas or interpretations. That is, if they're true. But at the same time, I don't think that any of these ideas are actually right. And let me tell you why. I believe each idea overlooks the main point that the writer is trying to make here in this context. If we were to take a step back and examine this passage in light of this chapter, and in light of this whole epistle, we would recognize that the writer's primary focus isn't necessarily on what needed to be cleansed, but rather who needed to be cleansed. Again, let me say that. The writer's primary focus isn't necessarily on what needed to be cleansed, but rather who needed to be cleansed. Be cleansed. Verse 24, we read, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. For who? For us. Which means this We're the ones who defile heaven. We're the problem in heaven, not Satan. It's our sin and filth that's got to be dealt with here. And so the issue here is not whether if Satan's going to be in heaven or not, but rather the issue is what's going to happen to you and what's going to happen to me when we get there. To clarify this a bit further, to borrow an illustration here, I want you to imagine with me a beautiful and immaculate palace. And for the sake of this example, let's call this palace heaven. And in this palace, we find white walls, white rugs, and white furniture, white curtains everywhere. Everything is flawless. Everything is organized and perfectly played. But surrounding this palace is a vast Field of mud gunk and you're deep in it covered head to toe with mud and let's say you make your way over to this palace heaven and you knock on that door and God opens that door and he looks at you and you look at him and you say can I come in and God says to you sure Come on in. Now, why would God do that? How can God do that? How can that happen? And some of you might be even thinking to yourself, that just sounds too easy. It can't be that easy. You can't just walk in there. You can't just, I can't just waltz into that palace because I'm a mess. I'm covered in. Dirt, give me one second and I'll prove to you why I'm unfit for this place called heaven. I'm covered in mud. One of the greatest weapons that Satan utilizes to keep people away from heaven and away from Jesus is by blinding them. And that by whispering a lie into their ears and perhaps you hear it often, He whispers into your ear, you're too dirty. You're too filthy to go there. You're too polluted to go into that relationship with Jesus. He's never going to want you. You're too dirty to ever think that you can go to heaven. And sadly, people eat that lie up all day long there might be some of you in here struggling with that very thought because you have a history of filth. Because of what you've seen or because of what you've done or because of what you've failed to do, viewing yourself as thoroughly unsavable. Sadly, many don't come to Christ for this very reason. But as we... Think about this, it's a very strange thing, isn't it? We find here that it's a very foolish thing, rather, to believe in this lie. And that because the very point of this verse here, the very heart of this text, is that Christ went into the presence of God with his cleansing agent, with his blood. For who? For us. Not that He might enable us to present ourselves as perfect. Not so that He might equip you to present yourself to be fitting. But He died for you so that you might be found in Christ alone. In other words, it's solely in Christ that makes you presentable in heaven, you see. It's solely in Christ alone that fits you for heaven. So that as you find yourselves at the door, standing there at Heaven's Palace, and as you stand there deep, entrenched in your filth, in the mud of your sin, you begin to think to yourself, there's just no way that I can go in there. I'm too filthy. I'll ruin everything. The kitchen will be a mess. The dining room will be a mess. And everything I touch, the walls, the floor, will be a mess. And God will hate me. And just before you turn around to leave, Jesus grabs you by the hand and He tells you, listen, I died so you wouldn't talk like that. I died so that you wouldn't think like that that and He starts to clean you up and He fits you for this place called heaven. The great Baptist preacher who I love to quote Spurgeon he uh, puts it like this and let me just read this for you. He writes was the heavenly place itself defiled? Never. No that cannot be. But if you and I had gone there without atonement by blood heaven would have been defiled. Look at the crowds of once sinful men and women who are daily entering there to dwell with God. How could they come there if the heavenly places had not been first prepared for them? Look at the multitude of our prayers and praises that are daily going up there. Are they not all in measure impure? And would it not have defiled heaven for God to accept them? But the Lord Jesus Christ has gone there and He has sprinkled His blood upon the mercy seat that so our prayers and praises and indeed ourselves also may enter there without hindrance. I love that. It's very clear. Church, the pioneer, the great captain of our salvation has made ways for us, and you need to see that this night, this very night, you need to get that. His blood not only provides complete remission of our sins, but it also sanctifies our presence in heaven. For those of you who are without Christ this evening, perhaps hesitant to come to Him because you find yourself unfit and unclean. On the basis of His Word, God calls you this night to come to Him. He calls you to come to Him. For God did not send His Son into the world to call the righteous, but He came to call the sick. It's the sick who know that they are in need of a great physician. He came to call the filthy. Heaven is meant for people just like you. God has sent His Son to take care of all that condemns you. He sent Jesus so that He might come with a better sacrifice so that He might make you habitable for heaven. In other words, unbelieving friends, in Christ, there is absolutely nothing to worry about for you. Your sins can never defile heaven. Your sins aren't grand enough to do that. Why? Because the work of Christ isn't only infinitely effective and sufficient, but in the words of Jesus Himself upon that cross, because it is finished. It is finished. If you are without Christ this evening, oh, how I urge you to come to Him now. Trust in Him. Submit yourself to Him and follow Him in all faith and obedience. Follow Him, for He has promised you this night to save you. For those of you who are saved, but perhaps imprisoned by your guilty conscience, I do hope and pray that this text would absolutely free you. It's for you to know that you have a great High Priest who now stands in your stead, who stands before the very face of God, so that when God looks at you, what He sees aren't your deficiencies, not your sins, not your failures, nor your repeated besetting sins, but He sees you perfectly justified in the Son. Brothers and sisters, you must know and you must remember that your acceptance to God is solely based upon the perfect High Priest. You must believe it. You must take hold of that promise. Because of the blood of Christ, salvation has been made perfect. And there is no way that any sin can ever defile heaven because the Son of God stands there as the great mediator with His blood, pleading the cause. His blood, which is far too effective and sufficient to save. So brothers and sisters, believe in this work, please. Believe in this great and finished work. Now verses 25 and 26, let's see what this finished work is and what it looks like. Look down with me to verse 25. We read, Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory because we've studied this quite frequently in weeks past. And then we read, But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. verse 26, can be divided into four parts. And so there are four things for us here that I want you to see tonight before we close. First, read, but now once. Second, at the end of the ages, or as some of your translations might have, at the consummation of the ages. Third, He has appeared or manifested Himself to put away sin. And lastly, the last point, by the sacrifice of Himself. First, the word that we find here in this contrast, but now, is not referring to time per se, but to a whole new reality that's been ushered in. And it's here within this contrast that we find this massive redemptive historical statement indicating that life and hope, which were once left troubled and hopeless and unsatisfactorily unsatisfactory, a state of unsatisfaction for a long, long time, he's now implying that uh, that the time now is totally different. And that because the but now, because God has turned the page, because God has turned the chapter of history and redemption by sending His Son, how many times? Once. But now, Once, meaning this is something, again, that can never be repeated. It can never be repeated lest we render the work of Christ as imperfect and insufficient, incomplete. But we know that the work of redemption has been gloriously finished, spanning the whole timeline of human history. Covering every corner of sin ever committed so that the people of God might walk free and faultless before the throne of God. Second, we read in referencing to the coming of Christ that Christ came once at the end or the consummation of the ages. Now what in the world does that mean? What is the writer trying to communicate here by saying that Christ had come once at the end of the ages? Well, the reason why I began our time together today by asking that question of what was the pivotal moment in human history was because we need to view this text with a biblical interpretation or orientation rather. Within the Jewish mind, biblically speaking, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. The advent of the Savior was to them the very end of the ages or the consummation of the ages. In other words, the end of the ages can be more literally translated to the climax or the pinnacle of history. And this is precisely the same thing that Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. In 1 Peter 1.20, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days for you. Meaning this, Jesus' high priestly activity inaugurated both the new covenant and the age of fulfillment. In other words, the age that's to come in the second coming of Christ has already been initiated through the death and and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Which means that we are right now, right now at this moment, currently living in in this time, in this tension between what theologians often refer to as the already but not yet, or sometimes they say kingdom theology, which we won't get into right now. And thirdly, notice we read, but now, once at the end of the ages, Jesus has appeared to remove, to annul, to cancel, to put sin away. Now the word that the writer uses here for put away is the same exact word that we find used back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, which reads, For on the one hand, there is an annulling, a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Now in verse 26 here, the writer uses that same word to describe the work of Christ, but now in relation to sin. Now, what does it mean to annul something? And I know we have lawyers in here too who know that very well, perhaps sadly. But what does it mean to annul something? It means this, to legally cancel something out as if it never happened. To remove something so that it's no longer a factor legally. And so what the writer's communicating here is that Jesus has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to do what? To remove the sins of His people so completely and comprehensively. All of the sins paid for so that we bear it no more. And friends, this idea of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ coming to bear the penalty for all sins, for all of His people, past, present, and future, all sides of sins, all forms of sins, all degrees of sins, all of it nailed to the cross, all of it put away, death paid in full, sacrifices made and substitution procured. This truth, should leave us in absolute astonishment and wonder. Friends, the work of Christ shouldn't just do something for us, but it should also do something to us. This is why we sing, and we've sung earlier today, songs over and over again about the cross. We love to sing songs about the cross at this church, do we not? We don't sing about the cross because it sounds good. We proclaim it because it is good. The death of Christ and the cross of Calvary lie at the very heart of the Gospel. It serves as the very bedrock of our salvation. My sin, oh the bliss, Of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not in part, but the whole, the whole, is nailed to that cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. If these words do nothing to you, then it means nothing for you. And if it means nothing for you, dare I say that Christ is yet not within you. He has come. He has come once and for all to remove, to cancel, to annul your sins, beloved. And how does He do it? Fourth and lastly, we read, through the sacrifice of Himself. Now why is this so important for us? It's important, yes, to emphasize the volition of Christ and Him coming by His own will and dying for sinners. Yes, to communicate the infinite and glorious sacrifice of Christ. But specifically in this context, it's important because it communicates the definite character of Jesus' sacrifice. It was His sacrifice. It was His payment with His own blood that He lifted up alone that undermines and obliterates any form of a works-based religion. It's when we clearly and simply understand the once-for-all nature of Christ's coming and His work of redemption that obliterates any and all forms of penance or self-righteousness. More often than not, and I'm speaking from experience here, Our lack of understanding of the nature and the character of Christ's sacrifice often demonstrates itself when you think to yourself that you need to do things. I need to do more things. I need to get my hands on more things before you can come to Christ in repentance. Thinking to yourself, I don't don't think I feel guilty enough to come to Christ. I don't think I feel guilty enough to confess my sin self. I think I'm going to do a little Bible reading today. I should read at least five chapters today of the Bible. I'm going to read five chapters, and that way I can make myself presentable to God, because at this moment, I'm not in the condition to present myself to God. If I read five chapters, perhaps He'll be more pleased with me. If I pray a little bit more, He'll be more willing to accept me. And I'm not saying this to communicate that reading or praying or repentance in any form is wrong. Because I'm all for that. I'm all in favor of feeling grieved over sin. But what we need to understand here is that God forgives you of your sins because Christ appeared once for all. God forgives you because Christ manifested Himself to put away Sin by the sacrifice of Himself once for all, not because you read five chapters of the book of Psalms. I'm sorry. God forgives you not on the basis of what you can offer or do, but solely on the blood of Christ alone. Church, when we and you embrace the all-sufficient, once-for-all character of Christ's death, it is only then you'll begin to realize that there's absolutely nothing that you can ever add nor take away to the forgiveness which is found in Christ. The manifestation of Christ to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself undermines all forms of self-righteousness. If you ever struggle with self-righteousness, go to the cross. Christianity in other words isn't about adding to anything but it's about accepting with a glad and humble heart what's already been done and provided for. This is the reason for why Jesus upon that cross cried out, it is finished. It is finished. Not to say that His trial is finished. Not to say that His Pain that he feels is finished. Not to say that the moment is finished, but that redemption is finished. It's complete, it's done, nothing more to be added. So, brothers and sisters, as you leave this place tonight, I implore you and encourage you rest. Rest confidently in the Son of God. Rest confidently and freely knowing that Christ came once for all at the end of the ages, that He manifested Himself and sacrificed Himself to put away sin. Now I want to end our time together here tonight by reading a hymn written by a man named Philip P. Bliss, the same man who actually wrote the song we sang earlier, Man of Sorrows. Philip P. Bliss, in his hymn titled, Once for All, writes these words. He writes, Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. And the chorus goes, Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O friend, now believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Let's bow in a word of prayer. O Father, we come confessing that we have far too often tried to save ourselves. But who is sufficient but Christ? who came once for all to accomplish all once. And that not only to achieve salvation on our behalf, but also to intercede for us to make the very place where our glorious Father dwells habitable for us. So as we look to Him, we pray that by the Holy Spirit You would help us to freely take hold of Him who is our Savior. Grant to us more and more of that resurrection life that we so desperately need. Refresh us by Your promises. Empower and embolden us through Your inerrant Word that we might be a people, a church, pillar Baptist church who walk worthily of the calling with which You have called. us. We pray all this in the One who is all-sufficient, the One who is our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.